I'm Commander Shepard, and Normandy FM is my favorite show on the Citadel. Normandy FM. 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 Hello and welcome to another wonderful, extracurricular, extra spectacular episode of Normandy FM. We're here to talk all things Mass Effect, and we're on Mass Effect Andromeda, so if you're tuning in right now, you're coming in kind of late. Hi, welcome. Boy, you've missed a lot. <laughs> there are 39 episodes that you can go back and listen to right now. It's like a Christmas surprise from myself, Eric Van Allen, and my co-host, Kenneth Shepard, to you. Yeah. Isn't that right, Ken? Don't you love yeah. Christmas? Sure. Are you a Christmas fan? Are you, are you like a holiday kind of guy? I mean, I like getting stuff. And like giving stuff. Oh, okay. Did you have to phrase it like a double entendre? <laughs> I mean, on this show, yeah. Yeah, yeah, fair. We gotta set the tone early, especially if we've got newcomers here. We are settling EOS today because that is what we came to the Andromeda Galaxy to do. That is what we showed up. We are the Pathfinder, and paths are about to be found. Outposts are gonna get settled. And some of these planets are going to start looking more like planets and less like, I don't know, Fallout levels. Uh, and Eos is kind of an interesting one because it like sets the stage for what your expectations are going to be moving forward of like how this game is going to progress, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look back at like Mass Effect 1, you had a very structured mission system where it was kind of moving. You know, you did one thing. You were on Novaria or you were on Pharos and like that was the thing. In Mass Effect 2, you had kind of this, okay, I've got, like, key story missions, like recruiting or going to Horizon, and then I've got loyalty missions and some other side things on the side. Mass Effect 3 very clearly was, like, here are priority missions and here are side missions, and these are what they are. And I actually really like the fact that they were just, like, priority mission. Um, Mm. I mean, from the outset, we didn't really talk about it much, but there are, what, five different categories of mission types in uh well i guess four because one of the folders is completed missions uh there are a lot of mission types for mass effect andromeda you need like multiple folders and multiple subfolders just to keep track of all them there's so much going on uh even on eos i feel like i touched down and i had one goal in mind when i started which was follow the main story path get to where the game wants me to go, settle this place down. But by the time I'd done that, I'd already stumbled into and solved multiple side missions along the way and added a bunch more to my system. And I'm already kind of feeling it with the game. Um, And and maybe I started to feel it here, and then I felt it more and more as we get into what our next episode will be. Uh, There is just so much stuff in this game that it can feel suffocating at times. And and I'm curious as to how you feel about that, Ken. Yeah, it's like a... So I'm going to coin a phrase that we're going to use for the rest of the season, which is open world bullshit. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, because Mass Effect 1 through 3, they were... I mean, like, even with Mass Effect 1, like, which had, like, the pseudo, like, open-world-ish areas, like, on different planets, there was usually about, like, one thing to do there, and then you got to leave. Everything in Mass Effect Andromeda is, like, bringing together a bunch of different quest lines, collectibles, a bunch of other garbage, and useless stuff, all into, like, one of these, like, I think six or seven planets that you can go through, and they're, you know, these big worlds that have different things going on, they're different, there's different atmosphere stuff going on, like, that we have to deal with, with, like, the remnant tech, and then there's different plot lines, like, you know, you go to places like Kadara, and there's, that's where, like, the, uh, sort of the different factions of the Rebellion, or the Resistance, whatever it was called, are, and then there's places like Elodin, that's got the Krogan, and it's like, they're, each of these big worlds has, like, their own distinct personalities and problems, but it's also, like, inundated with so much shit I actually don't care about. And that's just, like, the nature of open-world games for me, because, like, I don't typically play a lot of them. Like, the fact that I even got into Dragon Age Inquisition Mass Effect Andromeda the way I did is, like, a huge thing for me. Like, I'm still getting used to it. Like, it's still surprising to me all these years <laughs> later that I, like, even to whatever degree I did, got invested in, like, these smaller little things. But also, like, like I said, it's also, it's also bullshit. It's also a bunch of filler. So... For me, it was also it was always like finding what parts of the way that this game is designed interest me, which was you know the main plot. But it was also like you know, after we colonize the planet, we can do other things to make the place better, and like that stuff interests me. But I'm I've never been a big fan of like going to every tiny corner of an open world and living in it. That's just not the way I play games. So yeah, it's it's a lot of open world bullshit. I think for me, like, I'm wondering if it's easier for you on this replay to quickly identify what you need to be doing mm-hmm. and what you can skip over. Because for me, as a, you know, this is not my first time through this content, but I already feel like I'm hitting places where I forget, you know, like, what the next step is or what things are doing. I was al- I've was i already been DMing you, like, hey, do I need to be doing this? And, like, right. is this thing important? And I already feel like I'm hitting the point where the game is not giving me that stratified idea of, like, I want my missions, in an open world game, I like my missions and my objectives to be triaged. I want the most important things to be clearly and painfully obvious, and luckily, the one thing Andromeda does well is they have that specific folder that's just priority ops. I really wish they didn't do that thing where you have one mission that's been going for forever and it just keeps adding new objectives onto it over and over again. And so every time I click over to it, I'm like, oh my god, there's so many things to do on this. And no, it's really just one, but it's just also listing all the things you've already done all the way back to like the beginning of the game, which is bizarre to me. But they do very clearly go like these are the priority ops doing these will Mm. move the story forward and then that's where after that you kind of start to lose the thread because you you have like loyalty missions uh i believe they're called like allies and companions or something Mm. like that uh which is basically where rider family secrets which is the memory trigger stuff uh all the missing arc uh just kind of at this point which is basically just hey these arcs are missing we should probably keep an eye out for any info related to them and uh all your what kind of span out into loyalty campaigns i guess you would call versus like actual loyalty missions 
uh that's where those all end up and that's good that's like tier one tier two but then tier three is where i start to lose the thread a bit because Mm. some of this stuff is really involved and has lots of interesting stuff in it uh and the one i wanted so i might be getting ahead of myself but i just want to mention it and then we'll start to get into like the narrative setup as we get there but uh there's one that you can pick up before you go to eos which is uh they believe that the first murder in Andromeda has occurred. And uh, a Turian soldier has been arrested for shooting his commanding officer, who is also his friend. And you are asked by his wife to find some way to clear his name because she doesn't want him to become infamous as being the first murderer in Andromeda. And you basically get the okay to go and see if there's any additional evidence that might clear this up but either way you need to put a pin on this because we can't let it drag out anymore it looks bad for everything uh and so that's kind of when you're landing on eos that's already one task that you're set out uh you know to do in addition to the main story you have this extra stuff to do and so in that respect i like it but then there's just other stuff that starts to pile on that is so not as important Mm. or not as involved and it's it's like tiny little things i wish i had like the worst thing is that these are so tiny that i can barely remember them right. uh but they are t- they are tiny missions that end up either giving you something that you're not really sure what you just got or how to use it or they just end up being extremely inconsequential and maybe give you like a tiny boost in the planet viability which is kind of right. like the main mechanic we're being introduced to in this segment and a lot of those get relegated to, like, the actual, like, name of the mission, like, tier is tasks, which is... Yes. So, for me, like, in, in the various times that I've played this game, anything that was a task, I just didn't worry about. And for to my, to my knowledge, the majority of them aren't, like, time-sensitive at all. So, like, if there was a time where I wanted to, like, grind away and get all of those different tasks out of the way, I could do that. But generally, I I knew if something was in one of the top three tiers of missions, those are the things that I needed to focus on. And, you know, having my knowledge of having played through the whole game and played through a lot of the things, I know that those are the things that really have a greater standing in, like, the overall story of Mass Effect Andromeda. So, it's like, if you're playing along, tasks generally are not something we're going to be worried about too much. There might be, like, a couple that we end up doing, just, like, pointing out. But don't overwhelm yourself with all the little bullshit that they have they give you it's um i i think the one that has really stuck out to me and we'll get to next episode but it's on vold and when i was given it i looked at it and i was like this is probably this seems like it's a really high interest thing but at the same time it i think it says task in front of it so it seems like it's not and it's it's just bizarre at times the way it communicates what it wants you to do and also i think it hasn't andromeda has an issue not this episode as much but in the next couple and it's hard to i keep mentioning stuff that we will talk about next episode because i feel like i have a lot to talk about in the next episode but (laughs) uh it starts to have an issue with giving you too much at once that it becomes difficult to kind of flow chart it out in your head like the best way to approach all that because the one thing that i did like about the beginning of andromeda was that you're in this kind of open world but all these little side things are 
peppered ever so lightly just off the beaten path and stuff so you have this kind of general flow through the level that you can move through whereas once we get to the more open worlds like eos you just have what is essentially a circle i mean all the planets i've encountered so far can essentially be boiled down to a circle uh and in fact i found myself even on eos very early on uh, locating all the forward stations and stuff so i could easily traverse that circle and get to the objectives i wanted to get Mm. to without having to do too much driving but we've just jumped ahead very far so let's pull it back a bit let's pull it back a bit the tempest is touching down we we've got a sense of our crew now they're all working together they're all chipping in as we are noted lovers of here on normandy fm we love it when the crew (laughs) feels like a crew it's great everybody's getting in on the fun we like to have an involved crew uh, and that's one thing I do think the game really benefits from is once again we have a situation where as far as I know you have to take every character the game mm-hmm. gives you right. and that effectively lets them say hey we know that all these characters will always be present no matter how you feel about them so we get to have them interacting and stuff and as much as I, you know, we've talked about it as much as we like other games and the way they handle some of that stuff, it's really nice having a crew that feels like it, it all lives on a ship and talks to each other. Mm-hmm. And we get even a lot more of that. I feel, uh, in this, we can talk about that when we talk about the Tempest stuff, but, uh, we touched down on Eos and of course, toxic atmosphere. And <laughs> this is kind of funny. Um, when I was walking around, my rider had her helmet on but none of my squad mates did. Cora uh, <laughs> and Liam, neither of them ever put their helmets on. And I was like, neat, cool. That's a thing. You might have it set in settings to where helmets are on or off during stuff. That's a like that's an actual setting in the options menu, like whether you want like your squad to have their helmets on, right? Or yeah, have their helmets that on. Might be, that could be the case. That could be yeah. the case. Uh, it might be default off so who knows but i just thought that was funny that they were like it's toxic rider be careful and like liam was saying didn't this literally kill your father like a planet ago yeah um so we get to what is site one which is essentially one of i mean it's one of two i believe there's only Mm -hmm. two outposts that got established on eos both of them failed and we go to site one uh and we immediately get the sense of it's almost haunting because all these buildings are here and no people are there as far as we can tell it is deserted and i immediately got shades of the collectors when i saw Mm -hmm. this the first time i remember thinking like is this the collectors again are they going to be kidnapping people which it turns out was very prescient (laughs) but uh (laughs) it was you immediately just get the idea of how many people have already come here and tried to settle and died. Yeah. That was kind of my takeaway is like there are all there's already been so many losses. I like to think my you know the pathfinder is striking a path and stuff, but also there have been people before me who tried to do this. Mm-hmm. And it gave me a sense of why the pathfinder means so much in the context of the story because here's a person who ostensibly knows what they're doing and they're looking to do what others we're not able to do it gives you a sense of the weight that's happening right because it's basically like hey look if you screw up site three is gonna look like this you know yeah. um yeah, i enjoyed it, was, it a lot 
yeah, I mean, it's just like a recurring thing throughout this game for me. It's always knowing that like, like if I if I wanted to like drive myself nuts and like do the actual math of like every enemy that you kill in this game, like compared to how many people we brought with us to the Andromeda, like to Andromeda from the Milky Way, which is like a hundred thousand or so people like, across all the different species. Like just imagine like how many different people like just in the combat that Ryder does throughout the game, how many people we lost from that, how many people that we lose, like anytime something goes wrong. And it's just like it very, like it kind of dawns on you that like we don't like in maybe in the trilogy we didn't really think about all the sort of like the people that we lost in the war with the reapers but like and just mm-hmm. just the act of settling in a new galaxy we have lost so many people and we're going to continue to lose people from a much smaller pool of citizens and it's just it's just like a constant thing that like is you know really put into your face it's like one just knowing that like the weight of, hu- of not just human life, but, like, everybody's lives is so heavy here. Mm-hmm. And it really informed the way that I even approached, like, the smallest decisions here as well. Yeah, so the first person we come across, the person that we come across, actual person who is living here, uh, is a, a guy named Clancy who's holed up inside one of the buildings. And uh, we're trying to get in there because we want to turn everything back on. We want to get this site up and running again so we can start to venture out a little bit and he's basically like look i'm in here because i can scavenge and stuff everybody else is gone uh only crazy blue is one of the only she, I, <laughs> I think he mentions crazy blue and the old krogan uh in this dialogue but uh he mentions that there are very few people out here who aren't cat and the second you turn on that generator and, and get everything going again the cat are going to notice and they're going to send some troops in and so you yeah. basically have to convince him hey i'm the pathfinder i'll take care of it just once i'm done once everything's settled you open that door for me so i can get things going uh and i mean it's it's interesting that in this situation, we are coming back to a colony that has already been overrun by the cat. And at this point, I'm trying to remember because I know at a later point in the storyline, we already know this. But I think even at this point, I was starting to get a sense that our position in the galaxy and the cat's position in the galaxy may not be all that different. Right. Uh, they certainly act like an aggressor, uh, not like someone who is trying to civilize a homeworld more trying to use it uh yeah i I mean i was gonna say like at the at habitat 7 alec even said that he could tell based on their behavior that they weren't native to the planet and that they were basically forcing their way in to like try and figure out what was going on with this technology but for whatever reason that might have been but it was very much clear that like they are two different approaches to seemingly similar stances of like making your way onto a different homeworld. I think that sets up in it, like as little characterization as we've had of the cat so far, which is really little, really, really mm-hmm. little. Uh, they are basically just the other angry party with guns that always seems to be doing bad things. And in some ways that's a very shallow characterization that doesn't make them very compelling outright, but in other ways, like in concept i like this idea a lot that you are a colonizing force that is at odds with another colonizing force Mm -hmm. because i think there's room 
in the middle there that we might dare say venture onto in coming episodes uh, about what it's like when you then have to contend with the fact that there is a native population right. as well and they are caught in the middle. Um, right. And we will talk a lot about that next episode. But, uh, here we're just kind of, we know that we want EOS. We want our first win in the galaxy. This seems like the best hope. And the cat are in our way, so we kill a bunch of cat. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we get things turned on. We get a little reminder that Alec Ryder's name precedes him, and we are always beholden to our to our father's name. <laughs> Almost like this might be a recurring theme. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get into some open world bullshit. Ken, hell yeah, we gotta Let make some open world bullshit. We got a Mako, hey, except a it's the nomad. nomad is the peaceful Mako. <laughs> it is the pacifist's Mako. <laughs> no guns. Hmm. Uh, which I actually think was an interesting choice. Uh, I no. will go ahead and say that. I th- I like that for all the frills that the Nomad has that I really enjoy, I like the six-wheel drive that you can shift into. That's hmm. really sick. And uh, the boost and the jump jets which seem a lot better than the Makos I was able to do some really sick flips and shit Um, (laughs) not having a gun was a I feel very deliberate choice that does not feel like a choice that was made lightly and I enjoy that because not Mm -hmm. only does it change the way you approach combat because now when you pull up to like I'm just going to be honest in Mass Effect 1 especially whenever I would be exploring a planet on the Mako I would literally crash that thing into people yep. and just straight up like Dukes of Hazard my way into there. Like I'd go flying off cliff sides into other dudes and <laughs> rarely ever get out of my Mako because it was way more hilarious to just do dumb shit with the Mako. <laughs> uh, so here, not only does that change my approach combat wise, but it's also just another statement of how Ryder is different and how Ryder is approaching this right. differently. They're not necessarily ingrained military who is here to fight and establish conflict they are a person who is trying to explore and do recon and colonize uh which which is i I like this choice i also like the way the nomad handles i think it actually handles pretty well like an actual vehicle in a video game instead of like something that is on an icy road that just can't stick to the ground we'll get to icy roads don't worry oh yes we will yeah we will uh but we also get kind of our main open world bullshit mechanic, which is forward stations, which are yeah. magical checkpoint towers that fall from the sky and act as fast travel points as well as like replenish uh, points. You can swap out squad mates, you can go back to the Tempest, you can get supplies. Uh, you can do just about everything that you'd want to do on the ship at a forward station, uh, which is a cool... So it's, it makes sense in the structure of this game because, as we soon learn, Eos is a very big place. Right. And not only is it big, but it's it's boring to traverse. It really is. <laughs> Can the second I unlock any fast travel point and I get a quest that's near that thing, I just use that. I don't drive. Mm. I, I don't. I used the I used the nomad for the short distances, but right. there were very few times here where I did not just like make a loop of all the forward stations I could 
and then just start using fast travel points to get around. And I don't know whether that... I do know. It is a reflection on the design of this world that feels almost Red Dead Redemption in a way, because that is another game where people were like, oh, you should just enjoy the act Mm. of travel. And I'm like, if you don't make travel interesting and you give somebody an option to fast travel, they're going to take it every time. (laughs) My... Like, I mean, yeah, because, like, I mean, the only other open world thing that I really enjoy, and, and, like, especially from, like, a traversal standpoint, is, like, the Infamous series, which, like, the fundamentals of how you play that game are built around mm-hmm. how you can use your powers to traverse. Mm-hmm. So, for me, Andromeda is sort of, like, not so interesting open world, etc. That doesn't feel very different to me as how I feel about most open world games. So, like, I get that there's, like, an art to making exploration interesting to somebody that is in an open world game but i like i said like infamous is probably the only thing i can really say that was interesting i mean like maybe like insomniac spider-man but that was like yeah not yeah that was not quite as dynamic in the way that something like infamous was where like you use different abilities to get through different things where spider-man you're just swinging the entire time which is fine it's great well i feel the point of spider-man that was one game where i almost almost never used fast travel there was maybe one or two times where i had to get all the way across the map and i was like i'm good but if it was within a fair distance even like longer than i normally would in these types of games i'd be like okay because i think the web swinging in that game not only feels really good but it's surprisingly nuanced there's a lot of stuff that you can do in regards to like how wide you swing and the web zips and it gives you reason to want to use all the tools in that game and also just feels very rewarding they have clever ways of being like oh hey you can start doing tricks in the air as you go and they almost tony hawk uh spider-man a little bit to do all these <laughs> it's it's a very basic system but even tiny touches like that end up making so much difference it also helps that the world itself was very well designed you have this they they seem to have a very good sense of you unlock something and the things you want to do are within a good area around you to where you're not having to go cross map like crazy and then you do all the stuff you want to do you do the main story mission and you're on to the next one which might take you a bit farther but maybe you're adventuring to a place you haven't been to before or something like that it gives you a lot of reasons to want to explore and spend your time and really just live in the world Whereas here in Andromeda, very much by design, this is a wasteland and there is nothing here. And so the only stuff that you really have to engage with is the occasional side quest, which we're about to talk about one right now, and uh, the main quest and then a whole bunch of Ket that are just hanging out in different Mm. bases and stuff. And, And that stuff isn't even like Far Cry where there's outpost mechanics or stuff like that. It's just, here's some Ket hanging out. Yeah. You can kill him if you that, want. <laughs> I think, like, to its credit, as you get into, for, like, further into the game, you get to other planets that aren't Eos, like, and the, yes. the ba- basic yeah. sort of, you know, open world bullshit tutorial planet. There are, like, you know, places, there are things to see and to explore and quest lines that lead you to other places in this environment. But right now, it is very much like, we need to teach you how to do the Nomad with as little difficulty as possible mm-hmm. so yeah. let's not have a bunch of enemies around let's not have a bunch of obstacles so from this like it's not to say that it gets like you know infamous spider-man levels of interesting world to explore but it at least gets like where it feels like this 
there's a little bit more living happening around here. Yeah, when we get into, like, Havarl, I think we'll have more to talk mm. about in terms of mm-hmm. a more densely packed hub versus uh, this next episode that we do, which is going to be Vold and Havarl. Uh, those are, the, when I think of this game, I think of those as the two dynamics of map right. design in this game because Vold is freaking massive and Havarl is very tiny. In fact, yeah, I don't think you can use the Nomad in that map at all. I, I think it is yeah, very don't much so. limited to that yeah. area. So, uh, And that's really cool, and I actually like that. It's, here with EOS, they're kind of making this, like you said, it is a tutorial, sandboxy playground thing, and already I was feeling a little bit of the dreariness that I would later feel much greater involved. Uh, mm. Whereas I... I had my issues with Havarl for other reasons, but I did enjoy that it was a much more focused uh, area. But on EOS, uh, so I will say I did stumble across a side quest right away that I did want to bring up. I don't think it's especially dense, but I do think it's kind of interesting. Uh, As you're going to EOS, or, or to your first objective in EOS, which is going to this mysterious tower to figure out what's going on at these towers that the Ket are so interested in, uh you can run across uh, Site 2, the second outpost. And while you're there, you kind of realize that things have also gone wrong here, but maybe in a different way. Uh, As you Mm -hmm. kind of delve deeper, they mention that the doors are locked from the inside, or which is very... Are they locked from the inside or the outside? Basically, there's something that they're trying to keep caged at all costs. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... Finally, you get all the way in, and you open it up, and you realize there's this giant beast just mm. hanging out. And it's a great oh shit moment, because it you see it on the other side of all this stuff, and basically once you open the door, it opens the door on your side and on the, like their side, and it mm. runs out the other side. So you have basically a moment where you know that this thing has just rampaged outside, is waiting for you to walk out the door so it can clock you. <laughs> and yeah. That's great. And then also Ket start landing, which is like a double whammy of mm. terrible. Uh, I actually died a few times in this encounter because yeah. it's this was kind of the part where I was having trouble figuring out enemies have incredible range in this game. And mm. they were fighting at ranges that I did not expect Mass Effect enemies to be able to fight at. Right. And not only did that require me to play an extremely careful game but it also just became hard to see things. And I think this Mm -hmm. is where I kind of started to hit one of my bigger issues with these large levels, uh, is that the distances that occur are so massive that the weapons you have tend to not be that conducive. And sure, that maybe means you have to switch up your play style, but when you're fighting on EOS, it's a large plane like that shotguns and pistols start to feel like crap <laughs> and yeah uh i gradually adjusted over time you know i realized my charger smg was not going to always be the best idea i for most of this i think for most of my playthroughs so far i've been using the maddock assault rifle which is great at distances and that's i mean the maddock was my go-to gun in the mass effect trilogy so having it back is super right. nice. I was really glad to have that. And then the Charger kind of seems like the gun I've been upgrading for a while. It's the one I pull out when I just want to do a lot of damage in a really quick, like, short amount of time. Mm-hmm. It's the one that, like, I'll pump down shields or something on a larger enemy with the Maddox and then switch to the Charger and just burst them. Um, right. 
Yeah, I... For me personally, like, I mean, I, I stick with charge. Like, anything that's a distance is, like, not really a problem for me. But I think that it, that's another reason they have to have these sort of, like, these profile... Mm-hmm. The setup where you can constantly be switching... Like, like, you may need to set up, like, some profiles that are specifically dedicated for something that's long range or something that's short range. Yes. And kind of be able to switch yeah. back and forth for situations like that where you... You know, you can come prepared for one thing, but then you aren't, you know, left in this almost unwinnable situation mm-hmm. when you've come prepared for that specific thing. I will say I started, at this point, I stopped putting points purely in Biotic, which I had mm-hmm. been doing for a while, and I went into my, like, combat, my red mm-hmm. side, and added yeah. some points into just, you know, the general uh, beefiness in there, like, with my weapons, uh, weapon proficiency and, and health and stuff like that, and that started unlocking profiles that were like frontline fighter and things like that. Yeah. And that felt a lot better to unlock those because that was what I felt was missing from the game. And maybe what I kind of wished almost someone told you up front when you got Sam was somebody was like, you know, you have started out as one class and you want to play that class. That's great. You are going to encounter many different situations, which may require different profiles and as you and this is like he probably said something similar but this is like the key thing is that i don't feel like anyone told you that you would unlock these weird hybrid profiles as you went i thought that they would all fall under kind of the classic vanguard uh adept sort of thing and just knowing that there was this additional stuff that you unlock as you just kind of spread your points around and you can kind of find different nuances to the profiles Mm. beyond just the six classes that makes me way more interested in putting other points in because it means that i can dip my toe without having to throw away all the biotic power i have because that is like that's what i want my rider to be focused on is being a biotic powerhouse Mm -hmm. but i also need some basic stuff that's just going to make life easier to live and having those profiles develop naturally that way makes me feel better about the progression of this game as a whole right um anyways the secret project thing i just thought that was like an interesting little environmental storytelling thing and then they ruin it by shoving like this fetch quest into it and then it eventually gives you uh this is maybe the most annoying thing i had in this section of the game was you it you go and collect these things uh like data from different uh pads and stuff and you go back to the original computer. So all, already you kind of make this not very contiguous loop from the computer in, in Situ uh, back around to the computer in Situ. And then it gives you, it's like, oh, you've got a new blueprint that you can research at a research station. And I'm like, great, what, can I do that here? And it's like, you can do it at a research station. And I was like, okay, well, let's say so I pulled open my mini map. I was like, all right, there's a research station back at site one. I can go there. And I open the thing and there's just a list. And I'm assuming that the highest rarity thing I was offered at the time was the thing I unlocked because that sounded right. But I have no honest way of knowing because I feel like, especially with these smaller tasks and when you start getting into the really complex nebulous world of blueprints this game does not do a good job of saying like okay you have won a quest you have beaten a quest here is your reward this is how you can use it it's missing that last step 
and if it just straight up been like hey here's this thing that'll make your bullets be grenades instead even just one dialogue line is like it looks like they were researching a way to turn regular bullets into explosives i'd then know that when i was at a research station i should look for the thing that does that but it didn't have that they were just like wow they were researching some crazy stuff here yeah i think that's to me it's not even it's missing a step i feel like it has one step too many which is like Mm -hmm. instead of giving me the blueprint give me the weapon give me like the yeah give me the mod put it in my hands yeah because like and it just goes back to like they want to make this like loot heavy thing that just doesn't like it's just too much it's i I miss mass effect 2 and mass effect 3 streamlined wouldn't it yeah 100 percent. and like i feel like my eyes have glazed over multiple times like i've picked up guns and stuff like that already in this game i feel like my eyes have just glazed over because every time i open my inventory or i even go to a research station i'm like okay well i've collected some research points what should i spend them on and you open a menu and there's just like a million different guns and there's a million different options and in theory that that's something that looks great on a powerpoint slide right like right we have it's a nice back of the box yeah point. we have so many weapons it's great but okay like let's look at borderlands a, a series i'm always happy to clown on but uh i will say the one thing that it does very well is even though it's throwing dozens of guns at you at a time it gives you a good way of seeing how good the gun is at a glance it gives you very obvious mention of what this gun does that makes it special from other guns of its class so say you've got one that's a normal one like a normal shotgun and then you have another shotgun that's does a little bit more damage and also it blows up when you reload it it specifies that very clearly it has the rarity tier system which is extremely helpful and i know andromeda does as well but i just do not feel like it's as prominent or even well explained and that's another problem i have with this system in general is that it's just not well explained and uh it also does a good job of saying like okay you can either use it right now or we're going to give you the options to sort it out so you don't have to deal with clutter that much and that is one of my biggest things with andromeda is there's just clutter at every step and the fact that i can go through borderlands guns and be like okay i'm gonna mark this for junk i'm gonna mark this for junk i'm gonna star this so that way i can never junk it by accident because i want to hold on to it and then when i go to a merchant i say i want to sell all my junk and that just sells all of it like that's thank you thank you whoever at gearbox thought of doing that is brilliant it's so smart i believe diablo 3 does that as well Mm -hmm. and it's just it makes those loot games so much of a better experience compared to other games that have this i think destiny still doesn't have this option i haven't played in a while so i might have added it but when you have so many items in a game you need to start thinking about the ways that people manage to sort through that stuff and it's bizarre that we're talking about this in a mass effect game <laughs> like it's a, mass, it's a weird mass effect 2 you have like what three options per weapon category like it's very straightforward it's like you want the normal pistol you want the more damage but less fire rate or you want the more fire rate but less damage <laughs> like it's a weird thing to like when it comes to things like the the loot system of the game it feels like i mean not to be like totally dismissive of it, but it feels like by we're like the only op- other open world game that they had ever played with dragon Age inquisition is what it feels like mm, it's just like yeah. it, so many of the systems in place they're like small tweaks or in in some cases like the open world stuff is better because like you know you've got the nomad you've got the forward stations you've got the things that make open world exploration better but like the actual loot system is 
about the same, if not worse, in Andromeda. So, like, when you're not using, when you're not using, you know, games that are in that sort of space of loot open world shooters, and that have done these things better, it's like, what what were you looking at as like a reference point as to how you were going to improve upon or at least like integrate this into your game? And it's at the end point, like the thing that that bugs me the most is that when I do try to engage with this stuff and really spend time. You know, trying to do something, uh, really engage with all the things that are going on. It rarely feels as rewarding as I want it to, because right. at the end of the day, I just get handed a gun. And it's like, good job, you crafted an uncommon Madoc, and it has a slightly larger magazine size than your normal Madoc. And I'm like, I just like collected so much resources and went to a research station and researched something there and then added it to this and then crafted it onto this. And I had to decipher so many menus and it's like, it, it, it just gives you this thing that feels like an extremely incremental upgrade. And I am excited to eventually, at some point, probably further down the line in this playthrough, uh, really try... I. I'm to the point where I'm like, if I get research points for doing things, then I'm happy, but I'm not going to actively seek it. I stopped trying to scan everything a while ago, and I'm not really seeking a way to do any of this stuff. I'm just going to let it all happen naturally. And then near the end of the game, I might try and craft one or two super guns just to see if I can. But it sucks that I've basically got to the point where the only reason I ever engage with those menus is if I want to upgrade one of the guns that I'm using. Because that, at least, is somewhat straightforward. You just go in and it's like, hey, you you have a Charger 2. Do you want to upgrade it to a Charger 3? Yes. Okay, good job. You did great. Let's, let's go back to shooting stuff. And yeah. that at least feels normal enough. But all the mod stuff, all the crafting stuff just does not feel intuitive. And I know we just took like a massive segue when we were supposed to be getting on to these monoliths. Because you want to talk about more open world bullshit, <laughs> we got some monoliths. Uh, let's talk about the... Before we talk about... Uh, let's talk about PB first. We can talk about PB right. first. Because we're going to spend some time talking about monoliths, I think. Uh, so we get to the monolith. And wowee, does this thing look like the same thing we ran into on Habitat 7. Uh, there's some weird pillar stuff going on and a super weird console console and all this like weird stuff and there's some remnant well the remnant have not shown up yet but there will be remnant eventually uh as we try to interface with the console we get tackled by crazy blue herself miss pb uh can you say her full name for the podcast i cannot say her full name dude i I looked it up once and I was like, have you seen the SNL skit where Chance the Rapper is a sideline reporter no. at a hockey game? Okay. I have not. You, Kenneth, and everyone else who's listening to this podcast, the SNL episode that Chance the Rapper was on is one of the funniest in the last 10 years, probably. And there's a great okay. part where he is he's playing a basketball reporter who has been brought in as a hockey sideline reporter because the the usual hockey guy is out on paternity leave. And his whole deal is just that he is a guy who has no idea what hockey is. And he <laughs> cannot even fathom what's going on. And uh, 
one of my favorite parts is one of the players comes up for an interview and he's like uh who are you talking to there chance or not chance but i'm just gonna say chance for the reasons of this because i can't remember his in sketch character name he's who are you talking to there chance and he's like oh i'm talking to number four he's what's his name and he has him turn around (laughs) and on the back is the most norwegian name ever (laughs) And he's like, that's gonna, that's five consonants in a row without a vowel, so that's gonna be a no for me, Bob. (laughs) I think about that all the time because it's just every time I see one of these wild out there names, like the the full actual name that PB has, I think of like, that's like five consonants and no vowels. (laughs) That's a no for me. Um, (laughs) If I butcher this, I'm very sorry, PB, but it's Pelisaria Basale. Okay, okay. Oh, that you made it sound easier than it looks. Good job. Uh, but she likes to go by PB. Uh, we yep. get tackled by PB, and classically on brand for uh, Mass Effect. Let's say the Asari has tackled you onto the ground and is straddling you. Uh, is it weird to say she... I got some Evangelion flashbacks here? There's a scene that... in Evangelion that... Ha- I don't know how much you have watched of that show, but there's a scene in Evangelion that is kind of similar to this. <laughs> it was five episodes? Yeah, yeah. If you've seen five episodes, I think you've seen the scene with Rei and Shinji. Uh, I immediately thought of that scene. <laughs> it's like, oh my god. Please don't tell me this is a reference to Evangelion <laughs> in Mass Effect Andromeda. <laughs> um, Ken, tell me about the Asari horniness. How, what, what level are we at here on on the scale? Relative to, like, okay, if, like, if 10 is the consort in Mass Effect 1 and 1 is, like, a Banshee, I would say this wow. is probably somewhere around, like, a 7.5. Doing the Banshee's dirty. Well, I mean, I think, relative, like, uh, granted, like, okay, on the scale of, like, Reaper horniness, like, the Banshee's are, like, number 10, because, like, <laughs> I don't know why they're... Their tits are glowing, but that's a whole other story that we should have probably addressed. <laughs> yeah, I'm suddenly thinking somewhere about how we like never ten episodes about that. <laughs> but so what happened? Like you know, PB is straight up on top of Ryder in like a very suggestive position, and you know that's very indicative of like Bioware is horny for the Asari, and they're like not to use the this word, but thrusting them upon you, and mm-hmm. so. The one thing I appreciate about this scene is that it is very indicative of, like, some growth to an extent. Because, like, Shepard, in the event that that happened, like, and Asari was, like, basically riding them, would not, ha- like, would have had to just, like, s- sit there and take it. And just, like, exist in this scene where Bioware was like, don't, isn't that where you want her to be sitting by the end of the game? Isn't that what you want? Mm-hmm. No, it's not. But Ryder gets, like, it's, like, the first time you can interrupt in this game, where you can just shove her off mm-hmm. and you know i did it i was just like i don't want this woman sitting on me and it's like it's not it's not perfect because like in a perfect world they wouldn't do that in the first place but it does give like you this chance to kind of like push against it and just be like no this is not this is not who my character is he does not want pb sitting on him like this so again like it's not it, it is progress even if like the progress feels kind of minute Mm-hmm. I so my female rider let that one ride out because she is chaotically messy and we are here to get messy in the galaxy of Andromeda <laughs> but uh, I 
I did feel that the push away was a good like meeting in the middle almost if you're going to have that scene yeah. which is somewhere it, i mean like bringing up evangelion like this is a very anime ass thing to happen you know like right. girl crashes into boy puts them in awkward position uh that's an anime ass thing to happen and right it also like doesn't feel terribly out of character for who pb is because right. especially if you do start to go down the path where you flirt with her a little bit even if you never actually treat it as a romance you just kind of flirt with her a little bit that is definitely a little bit of her style uh, and you start to get into maybe why that is and things like that as the story mm-hmm. goes on but i do agree with you that it is kind of because the thing i always think about is that asari characters in mass effect are the catch-all like right I, we talked earlier about how liara was kind of this canon romance for mass effect it was this character that any shepherd could romance and they would it would follow that shepherd that character would follow that shepherd through all three games even though she wasn't technically a companion to she does have layer of the shadow broker which is pretty big compared to some of the mass effect one companions and pb almost seems to come off a similar way here because oh wow it's an asari scientist who's super interested in this mysterious precursor race that's hanging around everywhere and she's you know open to any rider that wants to hang out with her and it definitely does feel a little liara ish but another thing that you bring up that i think is maybe a little bit different from liara let's say like liara's first entrance in mass effect one is very damsel and distressy mm-hmm. uh she is this naive scientist who is in over her head uh and that's that's all well and fine they do the same thing with tali and i think tali's ends up coming off better in the long run than liara's does liara has a much more drastic change between mass effect right. one and mass effect two uh here pb is immediately just confident sassy mm-hmm. like cheeky uh she's very different from the matriarch style of asari that right. we've gotten used to she's almost more akin to a lot of the asari in mass in the mass effect trilogy that we've traditionally seen as villains uh the ones mm-hmm. who are in the mercenary core and thing like that but even then those mercenaries are usually portrayed as like bloodthirsty and wild child sort of thing right uh We've never really gotten, like, Liara is a very filled out, uh, interesting character with depth. Like, you have so much around her that's written around her, but you think about other Asari that have as much personification, even just in their day-to-day talk, in their normal dialogue, you don't have as much. The consort's very one note. Um, Samara, honest, like, Samara had growth over the, over the course of the series, but she is very one note. Uh, PB, at least, even initially, I started to feel like this was a much more in-depth character than I was used Mm -hmm. to having represent the Asari. And I like that a lot because we talked a lot about the idea of all these characters being outcasts. And Mm -hmm. immediately I felt like, yeah, PB never would have gotten along with the Asari matriarchy. She's not that type of person. And so... I always get kind of curious because I've I've seen differing opinions on PB as a whole that she is very much a, a little bit of a like manic pixie dream girl uh, in the same way that Sarah in Dragon Age Inquisition was, mm-hmm. uh, 
and I can understand that criticism a little bit, but I think her character is very interesting in the context of how the Asari have been classically represented in Mass Effect. Right. Yeah, I don't... I mean, we'll, we'll obviously talk about her more as the season goes on, but I don't know that Manifesting Green Girl really holds water when... Because, you know, that generally entails a character to be sort of like the facilitator of one person's growth, but not really their own. Mm-hmm. Where I feel like PB has, like, you know, one of the... It is, you know, a very more subversive storyline compared to the Asari, like we said. But it's there. Like, it's, she has her own story. Like, she has her own story. It's not all in, like, the service of writer's story. Mm-hmm. It's it's really interesting. And I will say that that's one thing that, as I play this now, having... I feel like I benefit from having played the Mass Effect trilogy so close to playing this and also, like, analyzing the Mass Effect trilogy so close Mm. to playing this because I'm starting to appreciate the ways in which I feel this team really did try to subvert expectations, to do things that you wouldn't have necessarily expected. I think that also maybe contributes a little bit to why people did not click with it as much, uh, which I understand. I honestly do. You know, there is that element of familiarity that you get... You know, from the time you load into Mass Effect 3 and you're like, oh, I love this world, I love these characters, I can't wait to explore them. And the idea that all of those notions are being turned on their heads and you've got a bureaucratic Krogan and you've got a, an Asari who's kind of somewhere between ditzy and sassy and kind of, you know, she's super smart, but she's also like, she hangs out in the escape pod because who knows if she's going to take off later because she just decided to and things like that. It's a a Turian character who's not super devoted to duty, who's more concerned with black market dealings than with serving some sort of military role. Like I understand a little bit why people might have bounced off these characters, but I'm already starting to feel, especially on the alien side of things, more attachment to these characters than I expected to. Right, um, and we'll get into more of that too because I, there's another character we're going to meet this episode who I'm surprised I'm liking very much as well. No, uh, but first we got to talk about some open world bullshit, Ken. Hell yeah, more of it, monoliths. Which I like. Okay, like oh, I know that was like God, a. I hate I... <laughs> What's your problem with the Doku, Eric? Uh, well, first of all, nothing. I do love a rousing game of Sudoku. I do not enjoy when it entails some Destiny 1-ass platforming combined with all this dumbass scanning shit. Like, I have to go find the numbers that go in the Sudoku. And for some reason... Did Destiny my... have platforming? Wait, what? You didn't know that? I, I haven't played that game in five years. Yeah, Destiny 1 had platforming. I mean, it was pretty lenient platforming. I mean, if you fell mm. off, you kind of just started at the beginning again. Uh, but you ever just realized how much of a game you forgot and like you just excised from memory? Oh, dude, my like, especially recently, I've felt like my brain is just it's like random access memory where it's just holding temporary information at any <laughs> amount of time, but then it's always shoving things out to fit more stuff in. And mm. so, I'm pretty sure, like, once I started working at my new job, I just hit I, I set a thing, I had a bank of, of information. And stuff just keeps rotating in and filing out of that. So that's great. Mm. Luckily, uh, the internet exists and I don't have to remember all the release dates for things all the time, which is one of the more annoying things. Uh, I I keep getting the release date for Cyberpunk 2077 and Marvel's Avengers mixed up because one is in April and the other is in May of 2020. And that's so far out that those concepts are nebulous to me. <laughs> mm. Anyway. 
Sudoku. So, so, yeah, so Ryder is some, somehow not able to retain glyph information past this, which is one of the things that frust me, frustrates me about all of this monolith stuff. But the idea is when you find a monolith, you've got to destroy all the remnant first. Uh, I believe most monoliths that you find already have remnant just hanging out there. So they're like, okay, you got to shoot the remnant. And at this point, prior to this, we had not really encountered many remnants. Uh, if you found the secret lab on Habitat 7, you would have fought a remnant. But this is kind of our first proper battle with the remnant. Right. And we get kind of introduced to three different varieties. We've got the Observer, which is an asshole. <laughs> uh, an Annihilator, which is a walking asshole. And then the Breacher, which is the asshole's cousin, smaller asshole. And I don't know if you've interpreted this yet. They're all assholes. I hate all of them. I really do not like fighting Remnant in this game. <laughs> it's... Oh boy. Okay, let's let's get into this. Um, Remnant... So the Observers kind of float around. I actually find them to be very similar to Reaper enemies uh specifically reapers in like mass effect 2 because the breachers kind of act like husks almost they are the things that charge at you and they will explode if they get on top of you uh the annihilators are kind of like your average unit but the thing that's frustrating about them is that they can spawn breachers which is super Mm. annoying are they called annihilators they're called assemblers aren't they yeah, that that was. I don't know why I was thinking. I don't know why I was thinking annihilators. I because I want to annihilate them. I want to annihilate those assholes. Mm. Back in the box quote for Normandy FM. <laughs> uh, yeah, the assemblers are super annoying because they have kind of a basic fire that actually I feel does not do too much damage. But there's always a ton of them, which is like, I think that's an annoying thing to make the thing that spawns more enemies kind of your basic ground troop because that means you're always dealing with a shit ton of units and then you have the observers who are floating eye lasers which are basically smaller versions of that giant orb you fought in mass effect 2 uh they float around everywhere they shoot you with lasers they're super annoying i hate them and so this was kind of the first point where i was like okay i need to start paying attention to biotic combos because i need to be doing damage at a higher rate than i am right now to be able to deal with the amount of enemies that are being produced in front of me uh but also the remnant don't really use cover which is fine you know you always have a target to shoot at but that also means that they seem to very easily subvert the design of the level in a way that can feel unfair at times and maybe not here but later on in the game i've i frequently ran into situations where i felt like i was getting hit by things when i shouldn't be because they just had the advantage in elevation or something like that and it caused me to have this moment where i was like why am i even bothering with cover why don't i just dodge and roll and shoot because that will just be better and then that turned out to be just as frustrating too because the observer lasers are just insanely accurate and even just two of them on you at the same time will melt you to nothing overall i just 
still have not hit a point and, and we haven't even got to some of the enemies that i think are just the most frustrating to deal with in the game and not in a good way but uh i really do feel like the remnant are not like like the cat are super bland but at least i've got kind of a sense of how combat flow works with them and i can i've hit that point where I understand how they work well enough for me to start to adapt my own strategies and start to adapt on the fly and do different things. And I really feel like I am that super powered pathfinder. Whereas with the remnant, I feel like I am just lucking my way through a battle and I'm either turtling behind a place where they can't get to me and blasting mm-hmm. away at them. I can't really identify their weak points because sometimes it feels like their red eyes are the weak points and I'm doing a lot of damage and other times it doesn't. Uh, and also they're just they're very tanky like they're just a hair tankier than the ket and that doesn't feel great because it usually means they're emptying several clips especially into shields because that means that you have potentially wasted damage if you don't focus fire on shields and with less less squad command potential in this game it all just kind of combines into feeling like i am solo versus these guys and maybe my squad Mm. mates will help and it's this never-ending horde versus me and this this is all very stream of conscious but as you can tell i have not enjoyed fighting the remnant so far in this game in this video i think for for me i like i expect my writer to be very much like a tank on his own so a lot of like the overwhelming like the nature of like the way the remnants kind of like try to overwhelm you and that's like their thing uh hasn't really ever hit me that hard it's yeah i i don't know it's i don't i don't like the remnant so we gotta fight the enemies we don't like and then we get to play a game where we run up and down kind of tracing these wires with our scanner and doing some light platforming to uh eventually suss out where these glyphs are so we can then plug them into the console and play a game of sudoku which the remnant apparently invented uh to unlock the console and at this point, I was like, cool, awesome. We're going to start resurrecting this world. And the game's like, you got to do two more of these. And I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> it was it not... Is, it is... <sighs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just another example of open world bullshit. Like, they got to put, like, three different things across the planet that you got to get to to get to the thing in the like, that's kind of, like, in the middle that you go to to actually progress the plot. And it's, it is just... It's one of the... I mean, in, in my opinion, it is one of the less sort of, like bothersome things because it is relatively like it's shorter like you got okay get these three things and you're good you're fine and like they do things to like kind of change them up in future planets where it's not like the same thing every time so i don't know like it's there are worse things in this game it's just kind of where i come down on that particular part of it i feel like i was fine with it this time around and then when i got to vold and started doing the ones on vold i got really frustrated with it because uh, that's where they kind of start introducing things where it's like, oh, you have to kind of do some different stuff, or you have to think about where this might end up, because it might be in a different place than where you think it might be, and things right. like that. And that's where I kind of get frustrated, because I'm like, this thing that you're putting a clever little twist on is something that just ends up feeling like busy work. And it becomes readily apparent that I am doing something that is absorbing a lot of my time and will continue to absorb a lot of my time. Like I've never been more aware of how much of my time is being consumed by a video game than when I'm looking for a glyph for a monolith. Like I'm just, 
aware of every aching second of my life that's being dumped into this video game versus doing literally anything else <laughs> and that is maybe the most damning thing i could say about it i've never been more aware of the passage of time <laughs> when i played monolith hunt in mass effect andromeda and the other weird thing that i guess we should probably get to now so i I don't know how true this is. So, Ken, until you confirm or deny this, I don't know how true of a statement this is. You only have to outpost one planet in this game to beat the game, right? Um, technically, yes. But in as much as, like, you can be like, you only have to get, like, through two loyalty missions to get out of the suicide mission alive in Mass Effect 2. Not that Mass Effect... Not that Andromeda has, like, these massive permutations of endings, but, like, to only call, like to only do one of the planets, like, you have to actively avoid things like loyalty missions and, you know, major side stuff. So... Okay. Yeah. Because that's, that's the other thing, is I had heard a lot about Andromeda, is that people had said that the monolith stuff ended up being superfluous uh, to the overall goal. And that's kind of where I hit it with later on worlds that I, I wanted to get your take on because I was just kind of going like, man, I'm not to keep doing this for like seven different worlds or something like that's oh, I don't I don't know if that number is seven or not. I assume because of Habitat Seven that that might be the number. It's like six or seven, I okay. think. Um, um, it's it's just I like... I, it feels immediately tiring in a way. I mean, like, if if you're, like, totally not down with the monoliths and, like, doing that part of it, that's, you know, that's fair. To me, what, to, like, kind of skip ahead, like, not go into, like, direct spoilers of stuff, but, like, I like that when I do the monolith and then go through the vault and then, you know, finish all of that, I like when I come out of the vault, the planet looks different. Like, I like, I get, mm-hmm. like, a sense of, like, there's, like, a bit of a satisfaction that, like... You know, like, there's an ice planet, like, there's a blizzard happening, but if you go through all the vaults, like, you come up and, like, it is a livable mm-hmm. snow. Like, I mean, it's still, there's still snow, it's still cold, but, like, it, it is not this death trap. Like, you, you see, like, this... Because, like, you know, there are a bunch of other things you gotta do to make a planet considered viable, and, you know... Right. The, the monoliths and the vaults are, like, you know, the other things that are, like, if you want to look, like, on, like, looking at the numbers of doing that, those are the things that are gonna get you the most... Pers- highest percentage. But... To me, like, there is, it's not, like, I go in I go in and out of the vault and, like, I just have a number. But, like, I actually tangibly see the way things have changed. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of, like, that's the satisfying part of it to me. So, before we get to the vault, we do have to mention that we will, at some point here, run into Drac, who is a character who will become another crewmate. Uh, an old Krogan, which I'm super down with, because... I was thinking about it, and I was like, we haven't seen very many old Krogan in Mass Effect, yeah. have we? Like, I mean, Rex, Rex is technically Rex is old, probably like... the old. Yeah, he doesn't look old, though. He, right. He's, he's got some age, but this is, like, old Krogan. Uh, I'm right. trying to remember, did Drek fight in the Rachni War? I think he... That sounds vaguely familiar to I me. know he mentions um... the Krogan Rebellions. I cannot remember yeah. if he was in the Rachni War or not, but... I, I just thought that was fascinating. It was like, yeah, here's right. this Krogan super soldier who has been around 
for as long as the Krogan have been slighted in this in the Milky Way right. galaxy, and he's coming to Andromeda to try and make a new start for the Krogan. I like that a lot. I like that character yeah. setup a lot. Also, you mentioned here that Vetra smooths things out if she is present in your squad between you and Drac because there mm-hmm. is initially some confrontation. Uh, if it's me, I think Korra might say something, but mostly it's Ryder kind of talking them down, being like, right. we're on the same side. We're not looking to like fight you. We want to help you. We're here. He's basically like, I'm here to kill Ket. If you're here to kill Ket too great like our right. interests align uh yeah it, with Vestra it's more like because they have like an established relationship and so first she's like I'm not helping any human from the Nexus what are you talking about and then Vestra's like hey can you like chill for just a second mm. and then so she's like alright any friend of Vestra is a friend of mine ah uh, see I kind of Cora gives a Karen ass response she's kind of like Cause you're, yeah it's it, I, oh, I don't even remember it I don't even remember it that's how memorable it is um great but we kind of run into drac and then unrun into drac because he just kind of takes off again and we don't run into him again until much later but we do just kind of get introduction to this character here uh that we will eventually get more into but first we gotta head to this remnant vault that we have revealed at the bed of a lake after uh activating all the monoliths and Ken, you've played Horizon Zero Dawn, right? Yeah. It's really hard for me to not think of Andromeda Vaults and Horizon Zero Dawn Vaults as the same thing. They're similar in concept. They're extremely similar in concept because, correct me if I'm wrong, but Horizon Zero Dawn also has a run from the bad thing that is happening moment at the end of its vaults. Am I right on that or am I getting those two mixed up? That sounds vaguely familiar, but I have not played that game in over two years, so yeah. don't quote me don't, on that. Yeah, don't quote us on that, but I feel like at least one of the Horizon Zero Dawn vaults had a similar moment, which kind of freaked me out when I first played this, because <laughs> when I got into this, I remember like vaults were something I did not... Look, real talk, I did not like Horizon Zero Dawn. I don't know what people saw in it mm. that I did not see. I thought it had some really interesting ideas, but overall I just did not vibe with it. And Yeah, I mean, I... I had like some thoughts on it that I like. I, I I enjoyed most of my time with the game, but like when it was done, I was kind of done with it and didn't want to go touch it again. Which is really interesting because if there's any engine that I would like Bioware to use for the next Mass Effect game, I would like it to be that engine because that that game very much feels like how I wanted Mass Effect Andromeda to feel. Like it's striking how similar those games are in their mechanics and just like the raw way mm-hmm. that they play, but just the game like it's such a nebulous concept, but like the game feel it just feels better to play Horizon than it does to play Andromeda. Uh, like things just feel more snappy and more fluid, and animations look better and just all that stuff. Like if you just took the mechanics from Andromeda and put them in the Horizon engine, I feel like it would be a much smoother experience overall. But. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, it's not a slight against any of Andromeda's mechanics. I'm saying it just needs the right vehicle to get it across the finish line. Um, the engine, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so we go inside the vault, and through a series of activating things, we begin to explore it a bit. And we split up with PB, so our squad is taking one route, uh, PB is taking another, and you have this kind of fun, almost like, uh, 
the Citadel DLC where the two teams are kind of talking to each other as you yeah. go through the area. It's it's cute. I like that. But you kind of just keep exploring and finding power conduits and finding remnants, and it's all very straightforward. I just you know it is it is what it is. <laughs> it's a dungeon basically, and you get to it, it looks really cool on the inside. You get the sense that these these vaults, these terraforming. Uh, as we will soon learn. Uh, well, I mean, we know by this point that they're essentially terraforming objects, but uh, these machines run much deeper than you think they do. And it gives you a right. real sense that they are almost intrinsic to the planet. Like, I got this sense mm. that this stuff went so deep that it was like we were inside the bones of the planet. Um, yeah. Which is fascinating to me because obviously that opened up a lot of speculation for me. Again, if I'm hitting on something, I don't mean to. I legitimately mean this. I don't know how the back half of this game goes. So I'm, <laughs> if I'm sounding a little too like foresight here, I promise you I have not read ahead. Because if there's one thing I don't want to do, it's read more than I have to about Mass Effect Andromeda. But, um, come on, Ken. You know i got to make these jokes. Keeps things fun. But, uh I do. I did like the the idea because, for all the sense that we got that the Protheans were these precursor aliens who set up the Mass Effect universe, which we eventually learned was not exactly the truth. But uh, for as much sense as we got of all this ingrained technology in Mass Effect, it kind of felt topical in a way like it never felt like it extended down to the core of what the galaxy was, and obviously that was for a mm. very clear set reason uh that the reapers were aiming for whereas here i keep getting the sense that this stuff is so built in that whatever the remnant are they are as core if not more to the andromeda galaxy as the reapers are to the milky way galaxy yeah uh which is cool i like that sense it's it's giving me those little tingles of like oh man we have a reaper level threat here yeah it's kind of like I it feels like there's an actual sense of discovery that I mean, yeah, you were learning about all these new alien re- alien species and their cultures, etc. In the trilogy, but I, how often were we going into something that we hadn't seen before that mm-hmm. like somebody didn't already know about? So like, I like that sense of like discovery and adventure that is here because I mean it is so like from a fundamental standpoint, Andromeda is a different story than the trilogy, and that's you know depending on who you ask, that's a good or bad thing. But it, like I, I feel like I'm getting a different experience in this world from Andromeda, and that's something that you know. As we get get to the season, we'll talk about some more. But I don't know. Like if you know, we're we're supposed to be like these pathfinders. We're exploring this unknown galaxy. Like I feel like it. Really, the game really captures that well, especially in things like the vault, where we are in this place as a very alien, not to just not just to like us specifically, the writer, but to everybody that's around us. Like nobody can give us any sense as to what's going to be around the next corner. Yeah, and you almost get more of, like, I compared to Mass Effect 1, it felt like a Star Trek kind of game, where you're kind of zipping around the galaxy and going to all these planets and going on these very bespoke missions that were kind of one-offs, almost like episodes, and I get that same sense, not like the contained episode sense, but definitely the idea that we are on this sense of discovery, and especially more... As, as we get into this next episode like this next episode that we do I hate to keep like previewing and teasing and <laughs> stuff but 
I really do feel like the next episode we do is going to encapsulate a lot of my early thoughts of Andromeda because it just it captures so much in one moment that EOS still feels like draining wheels. EOS still feels like yeah. we're at the very beginning of the game. We have not yet begun to grapple with what this game is actually going to be. We're just kind of getting a setup of how it's going to work and how the structure is going to play out. So right. When we get to the end of this vault, and we kind of have this, I guess you call it boss fight, we just fight some tough enemies, and uh, activate the vault, things start to go bad, and this, the mist from fog, the mist from uh, Lost shows up and starts chasing us, and we immediately <laughs> realize this is a bad thing. We also pick something up while we're there. Um, I forget what exactly like it looks like it's like a weird artifact trinket sort of thing that we had found at the top of the vault and we kind of brought with us i'm trying to remember help me out ken i'm trying to remember how that's like the little sort of cylinder thing that people yeah because it it felt like that was important but it also feels like they glossed over it very quickly and i have not yet seen it again in my playthrough but granted i've not done another vault yet in my playthrough it's part of it plays into the story. Not, it, it plays into like PB's stuff. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so as we're kind of running out of here, we're literally just running from this evil smoke, and it's a cool sequence. Like it does a lot of very clever stuff with the geometry of the space, and mm-hmm. it has like you know, there's the gray part where you're kind of running up the, the stairs as the uh, as the the smoke is closing in on you from one side. So as you're running up and up, you're not like getting away from it at all but you're running towards a place that will get you ahead of it like there's i always like to look at how games measure out these sorts of situations you know how they pace it so that you always feel like it's just behind you but not like so much that's going to catch you and because i i made some platforming errors and i still got out of here okay in one go and it definitely did not feel like it was difficult to outrun but it was just like the right amount of tension for this segment. And I was glad yeah. that I did not have to run the full length of all that I traveled down to. Cause that's what I was really worried about. I was like, are they going to make me run yeah. <laughs> all the way back? And luckily they had like a specific path. It was like, Hey, here's the escape path. That was very much right. straight, you know, streamlined. Um, yeah. And we make our big save to get everybody out of the vault by running back into the smoke and, and activating the interface to get out of there and stuff. It's very heroic. And, uh, mm. So I always thought that that was kind of weird because that seems like I feel like they didn't yet go into why that system does that if it's like a purge or something like that or or what was going on there. I imagine that will be expanded upon later in the story mm. what exactly is happening there. But mm. you do have this moment where you run outside and like you said, everything's better. The the radiation yeah. is clearing up. It's looking more like an inhabitable planet, and that's a very nice little moment that you get as a reward for that. Also, PB joins you. We also, yeah, yeah. She's just like, all I need is a, an escape pod, and I'm set. So that's the thing. But we also like before we get out of the vault, mm-hmm. we see what is basically like a map of the yes, cluster. Yeah, yeah. And we and we see all these like different planets being like pained, I guess, by what we've done. So we learn that we all turn of on these, the Wi-Fi. Basically, yeah. So we learned that these vaults must be part of like a system that seems to be at least cluster wide, if not galaxy wide. So 
our that's basically our lead at this point. Like we know a way that we can maybe fix the because like none of the golden worlds that we saw like there are long red scanners are as we saw them back then. You know, I mean a lot can happen in six hundred years, so this might be our way to kind of at least it might not be places like Habitat Seven that we get back, but maybe there's other places that seem uninhabitable right now, but are maybe. And like they're salvageable, right? We even get a lead on one of those, which will take us into the next episode. But uh, the one like lingering question I had that I still have uh, out of this initial vault segment as well is: so we have this idea of we know that before we set out for the Golden Worlds, we knew they were okay. We knew they were good. They did not have these remnant structures on them. Uh, as somewhere in the between is where all of this stuff happened. And so I guess what my question then would be, and what I'm interested to see how they resolve, is what happened in the in-between that caused them to install this machine that would terraform the planet into something inhabitable? I mean, essentially back into something that is inhabitable. And why was it creating or allowing a bad situation on these planets to happen? Basically, like... You think about it in the sense of like, okay, planet is good. Okay, planet's inhabitable by human life or, or whatever life is intended to live there. And then somewhere in the between, remnants show up, these massive structures appear, and bad conditions are happening on this planet now. And, and these machines are able to terraform and return these planets to their good status. But that makes me wonder why did the machines need to be there in the first place. Why did the structures need to be there in the first place if the goal was to have them be that original status of good? Mm. You, you get what I'm saying? Like the logic there? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm there's like a missing puzzle piece somewhere in there that I'm really interested to see where it comes about. I have a feeling it has to do with the Scourge. I have a feeling it has to do with the Ket. But we will see. Uh, this is just your speculation hour with Eric. <laughs> you know, it's a, if this was a if this was a video podcast, I would be like throughout every time you like have these moments of like wondering things, I would just be like Jim from the office, just looking right into the camera. <laughs> it's I I just played Telling Lies over the weekend, and so I'm in like detective mode now. Telling Lies <laughs> is a very good game, by the way. It is. I'm not sure I like check it as out my much review as her story, but that's yeah. I mean, not to, like, totally derail our Mass Effect podcast, but, like, I-, I did like that her story is at least, like, a modicum, like, more focused. Yes. Because, like, there's there's so much, like... Because, like, you know, her story is... Or, I mean, excuse me, Telling Lies is, like, you know, four times as much to look through, but a lot of that comes off as, like, red herrings and, like, things that... And especially when that game is on... I didn't even feel like, like they time limit. red herrings, because I feel like you can immediately... You immediately get into what the sub like the substance of that story is very quick because it all does still center on a single character and those, well, like, those other the three least, kind like, of rotate around them yeah but it's like at the very least like there are like videos like specific videos like this doesn't really have much to do with what i'm looking for and i just use some of my unspoken time moment on it oh know? yeah no i there was a very long video that i was like it can't be this long and there's nothing in it and uh, no it's... yeah and it it took it took me some time to figure out that like if i searched for a word it would always start the video at that point but i could rewind it oh yeah not yeah. like there was like it took me like at least like maybe 30 minutes of looking through videos to realize oh i don't have to think of what they might have said prior to that to go see what was before 
what I've already found. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole another story for a whole another podcast that is not Normandy FM. <laughs> Telling Lies is an interesting game if you like detective games. Uh, I would definitely recommend you check it out. But we're talking about Mass Effect Andromeda. So uh, now that we've got PB, the planet's inhabitable, we start... By this point, I had already found the outpost location and sam had been like mm-hmm. hey we should probably put an outpost here but can't do it yet and so at this point right. it was like hey we should probably head back to that point where we found an outpost and once we get there uh for game design reasons drac is in a firefight with some kits and we help him take it i just said that like a russian i just realized that i was like kit oh <laughs> 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 So we take out the kit. <laughs> oh no! Stop it! Stop it! <laughs> Finally, I was like, Zaid disappeared from the Mass Effect canon. I was like, Who's going to be my voice for Andromeda? Where am I going to get good? We have Russian, Russian writer <laughs> rolling up. <laughs> um, mm. So we fight the cat and. Uh, Drax finally, finally got like, hey, you can hold your own. You're doing pretty well out here for for Nexus help. You're you're all right. Uh, and you just kind of have this moment where you're like, yeah, you know, you're badass too. Let's be badasses together. And he's like, fine, okay, I'll help. <laughs> if I you. must. Clearly, I am here to be recruited, so I will be recruited. And uh, that's great. We'll talk about him a little bit more in a second. But first, we've got a major decision to make, a game changing decision to make here, Ken. This is going to affect everything that happens in this game from here on out. Mm hmm. I'm being facetious because I already know that this is actually kind of a small decision in the scheme of things. <laughs> uh, it's it's symbolic. There's a principle to it. It's symbolic, and it changes the context of some side missions and stuff. But other than that, mm, it's pretty tiny. <laughs> uh, so we have the choice to either make the first outpost on EOS either a science base or a military base. So, you know, like a place where soldiers can train and the militia can get built up and mobilize against the cat or a science base where we can start to research EOS and Andromeda at large. And depending on what we choose, uh, that will set the tone for the andromeda initiative moving forward which is kind of weird because there have already been two bases already so you figure that would set the tone but this is the one it's sticking this time so i think it's about like a pathfinder is yes. the one that is being the one to like you know put the stick down and basically say what the initiative is here for so i want to hear what you chose ken uh, i chose the science outpost just because like i don't like again like i don't want the first outpost we have to be something that implies that we're here to do anything else other than to learn and kind of like establish new homes because I mean what's you know if somebody shows up on your front lawn like establishes a military outpost you're like I don't know that they have our best interests like it's it's all about you know it's, it's politics it's like knowing that what you're doing sets the precedent for everything else we're going to do after mm-hmm I did the same. I chose the science team just because my thinking was, A, I'm here as Ryder, and we have the Apex team, so we do have some, like, forces that are able to mobilize. Uh, But also, we want long-term viability. We we want to understand where we are living. We want to gain a greater appreciation. We want to live here. We don't just want to exist here. And going back to the Ket, 
you know, I look at the cat and every outpost they establish is a military outpost. They are a military mm-hmm. force. And the thing about military is, so I, I thought about it this way. If you are a military force there, you are not doing anything to try and irrigate the land, to produce new crops, to develop in any in any way. And so the only way that you're going to really get supplies is by taking them by force. And so that means more fighting with the cat. And that in turn makes that outpost more and more of a dangerous outpost because it has to constantly be at war for supplies. So I was just thinking about like if I want to create a sustainable ecosystem mm-hmm. on EOS, we need to understand more about EOS. We can't just right. be taking our supplies from cat raids. We need to be understanding what's going on here. So yeah, science definitely all the way. We are team science here. Uh, yeah. And it, we get a great little scene of all the, the outpost stuff flying in. It's very grand. It's mm-hmm. very it's very nice. And, and we get kind of a make good here with Addison. And so here's the other part I'm curious about. Were you chill with Addison or did you rebuff her? I was... I started out very much like, what are you... Like, kind of suspicious. Because like, you can be like, what's your game, Addison? Like, why, why are you mm-hmm. nice to me now that everything's working out? Mm-hmm. There was, like, at the, at the end, it was kind of just like... What you hope to gain through me doesn't really matter because I'm just here to do what the Pathfinder said to do. I'm here to find homes. I don't really care about your agenda. I am here to make good on my responsibilities as a Pathfinder. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mine was mine was about the same. Uh, I might have been a little bit harsher, and I still have been harsher with Addison just because she is she plays the antagonist a lot, and yeah, uh, my rider ain't about that. So, but maybe a little bit more with uh, with Tan than with Addison. I. No. Boy, when we get back to the to the nexus here, <laughs> boy, I tell Tan to shove it. <laughs> um, so now we get kind of told that okay, you know, the radiation's gonna start to clear up, but it'll take a while, and you should probably head yeah. back to the nexus, start thinking about what your next move is. And I like that you mentioned this. This is to avoid a hinterlands situation <laughs> where yeah. the player just gets stuck in this opening sandbox when it's like, no, come back here if you want to find more stuff and do more things, but you are done with what you need to do here. And right. that is at least one good thing I like a lot about EOS is that they are very clear. Like, hey, no, it's time to move on. You're good. Keep going. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, like... The- I remember even, like, there were articles and memes about, like, hey, you want to enjoy this game and leave the hinterlands. Yep. We're, we're talking about Dragon Age Inquisition, if, we, if that wasn't clear. But, yeah, it's just, like, there's a clarity to it. There's, like, by making it where you can't do everything here, we make you understand that you can go literally anywhere else and do something else. Mm-hmm. It's it's time to move along. You'll come back. Don't worry. Uh, so now we get back on board the Tempest, and this is where we're going to close it out narrative-wise for the episode. So next episode will be uh let's say a little excursion that goes a little awry and then we'll be heading to some other planets as a part of that we'll we'll be visiting three new planets next episode that's thrilling that we will uh but let's end it off with a little bit of tempest talk because at this point you know we've got a bustling crew we get a lot of people on board i realized that last week i had run into suvi's second conversation before i ran into her first <laughs> so we already talked about that one but uh suvi I, I, i'm coming around on her i'll let you know from where i am in the story i'm coming around a little bit she, mm. she's okay she's maybe not terrible uh you know who is terrible cora mm. <laughs> yeah yeah so we get into more 
discussion with Korra about what happened with her, her being a, a superhuman biotic, uh, and kind of how she ended up in the initiative, which is basically her commander, like, urged her to join the initiative, which you gotta kind of wonder what the reasoning behind that like, was. Uh, yeah, okay, we can... We can assume, like, oh, maybe she was just tired of you appropriating her culture. But, like, as much as it is as easy and valid and earned as it is to make fun of Korra, it does touch on something that is a little bit... You know, like, she fits into, like, the sort of idea that, like, these characters are all trying to find a place for themselves in a new galaxy. Because, like, you know, Korra was a human biotic that was probably not well received by humanity mm-hmm. and she gets to be an, she gets to go to the Ansari Commando and they're like what is this human doing here like that is you know being the weird appropriating culture person that she is um like I like like I can follow the thread of like her commander's like you need to go to a place where there aren't these like biases towards you like whether mm-hmm. you're a human biotic or you're a human that's hanging out in Ansari uh military outfits yeah it would just be nice if like she if she took that opportunity to like carve something new for herself instead of constantly harping on everybody else's shit (laughs) well it gives you an idea of why she cared so much about alec Ryder too because alec then kind of became this figure you can get the sense that she was always looking for a hopeful figure who was going to lead her into whatever her new life was going to be and for Mm -hmm. her that was alec and so to have to go from alec Ryder to the less prepared less trained less mature child uh that's a little bit of a in their eyes it's a downgrade and so you kind of start to get the idea of what's going on and why she is this way it's not wholly terrible but i'm still not to the point yet where i'm like all right cora you're all right now like no i'm not there yet Mm. (laughs) we'll see if just wait till you get to her loyalty mission oh just wait oh boy uh we already talked about suvi uh very interesting conversation with her about science and god and faith very good like that a lot i'm, I'm coming around on it uh mm. my my southern bones still tingle a bit but is what is uh we we get into some like internship stuff we kind of set up these relationships that these characters are going to have throughout the game like callow and gill kind of arguing with each other callow's loves the ship loves the ship the way it is gill wants to always be upgrading and repairing and changing mm. things out so they have some friction right. there you can kind of run into some other situations. I had Lexi was bothering Drac about uh, physical, I think it was. Or it might have been Liam. Uh, but she was, like, pestering someone, like, hey, you haven't been to my clinic yet. Get over there. You need to be healthy. Mm. And they're like, no, I don't want to. And she was like, if you want to survive on missions, you can't yeah, die. I mean, there's also, like, it's very pronounced with her and PB. Like, just... And I think that that just also comes from, like, friction of, like, them both being Asari that have very different views of the world. Mm-hmm. So there is that sort of, like, butting of heads there. And and speaking of PB, we do get to talk to her now. She is literally set up in the escape pod next to the uh next to the I guess you would call it like I almost wanted to say the crow's nest, uh the helm, right next to the helm of the ship. And mm. it's that kind of sets the tone for her character very early that she is she doesn't want to commit. She wants to be able to to get out. Mm. And in some ways, if she she sits she sleeps in the escape pod, what could possibly be symbolic about that? Well, in some ways, I think it's it's nice because I think the idea is not necessarily that she could jettison at any time she wants, but she wants the option, and I think the right. option matters more to her than actually doing it. 
and nice. it's its own form of security blanket to like know yes. that she doesn't have to have security in the ship exactly and you know we get kind of a hint here that she came here with someone it did not work out uh you know she asked for some run tech and you can kind of flirt with her and she kind of playfully flirts back uh it which kind of becomes the the way that her romance progresses as you get more rem tech and you advance further along her loyalty line which hers is a little bit more straightforward to start you're not really doing as many missions uh you're kind of just finding rem tech as you kind of go through the campaign and stuff and then it turns into more conversations with pb uh it it feels very natural the way this starts to develop which i kind of like mm. it feels very paced uh which yeah. coming off of even games like i've i've been playing fire emblem in my free time i'm on my second run now and i hit points in fire emblem where i'm like okay i'm only on chapter five and i've already maxed out support for some characters and it really feels like yeah. some things are progressing super fast and others aren't uh right. i feel the much more deliberate pacing here and i, I like that because i do like it when yeah. it feels like a character's relationship spans the length of the game versus like right in installments exactly. that come about uh yeah artificially and it, it, it's and it's like how because like you know when in mass effect 2 like they had the loyalty missions but they were very much a specific mission where in andromeda characters have these sort of ongoing threads that keeps you know the, the side of the like the loyalty mission you know going on throughout the game as well as you know just like the general sort of in context main story conversations so like it and it also comes to the fact they have like only six squad mates in this game so they can kind of have more content for all of them across the whole game as opposed to like very set bits like they did in mass effect 2 mm-hmm. it's it's much better i like the pacing in this game a lot mm. uh in, in terms of relationships I, I think it's progressing very well we also kind of get the starts of the movie night side quest which we will eventually start to dive into as the story goes on uh we also get some hints of some other side quests and we get drac who we get to find out is kesh's grandfather which is super neat uh yeah but he also just Drac is so good. Drac's great. I really do like Drac. I don't know why I didn't like him as much the first time around. I remember not liking him, like just kind of thinking, like, "Oh wow, they gave me another Rex." Uh, this mm. time around, now that I'm a little bit more invested in Kesha's character and in the politics and the Nexus, I think he's an interesting foil to that because he is very much someone who is already like he already got used by the Council and mm-hmm. tossed out and so he went to andromeda for a new start and guess what happens the second they get to andromeda the yeah. the andromeda initiative uses the krogan and then tosses them out and yeah it's a yeah I mean, it's like it's interesting like it's something i've been sort of like realizing now like having played this game like almost five times now and you know just now doing a podcast on it two years later like it's gonna be like a lot of the conflicts from the milky way they, they came with us to andromeda uh-huh and it's it's interesting to see some of these things play out without the Reapers to push them along, like because you know we get to you know Mass Effect Three, the Reapers are here. Everyone's like, okay, everyone tuck it for like a minute and let's get all this sorted out so we can fight this one thing. Where in Andromeda you get more of like a sort of natural evolution of these same conflicts and like what can, what how do these people go around fixing these you know centuries long conflicts when they don't have like a Reaper over their shoulder right and like how does that stuff even start to resolve like one of the things i really i so i know that we do not ever have any stuff with the quarian arc in this game uh and 
that kind of bums me out because I'd like to see how that race adapts to a new galaxy. Mm. Um, well, let me tell you about Mass Effect Andromeda Annihilation, the novel by Catherine Valente that is really good, actually. Does that cover and the you can get it arc? on. It is. It's about the Quarian arc. It's about the entire like this. We'll put a pen in that until the finale. Okay, I might actually I might look into that. That would actually intrigue me a fair bit. So, uh, no. but yeah, we get kind of the sense of how this stuff is playing out. I think it's really highlighted by the fact that uh, Drax loyalty mission as it starts is him wanting us to look into Spender, who is an associate uh, assistant for uh, for Kesh, who has a bad past with the crow. Addison. Um, was that you said? Oh, Addison. Yeah, uh, I thought he. Uh, yeah. I thought he worked for Cat for Cash for some. Oh reason no, Cash would wring his neck if she had the opportunity. Yeah. but he, he kind of indicates that Cash might have like a blind spot for some of this stuff where he does not. Um, mm. I, I feel like you when you meet when you meet Cash on the Nexus, you definitely get the sense that she's like, I, I'm not putting up with this crap. But uh, I feel like early on, Drac mentioned he might have been talking about Addison, so maybe I got confused somewhere in the dialogue but basically like spender's stuff has kind of gone unnoticed on like all his scummy work has gone unnoticed right and he was the major reason for the krogan getting kicked off as well yeah uh and we do so as we embark on that investigation we do get an option here to ask him to stop calling us kid uh ken i did not do that of course not it's let the old man call you whatever he wants he's been through enough he's earned it and also like i don't know that's a fine term of endearment for an old krogan yeah like it it doesn't feel creepy in the way that like vega's Mm. nicknameification of you did like his yeah his was like oh i'm gonna call you loca and like like very much hitting on you in a way that was like very inappropriate whereas here it's like you know he's just going like oh kid and stuff like that it's like i don't know it's it feels very like grand paternal in a way that is very endearing and i was like oh drac you're great you're grumpy and i love you (laughs) like (laughs) oh who doesn't love drac can't believe i ever didn't uh that closes out our what we have set up here if you can hear those noises in the background that's because i'm opening up our normandy fm gmail to check if we've got any messages this week we do not but we do have some new patrons thank you so much to folks who are just now joining in also special special shout out see i talk all day this is what happens special shout out to our uh 25 patron ruben vanderlund thank you so much for contributing thank you so much everyone who donates to this project who keeps the lights on around here we love it we love y'all we love having you we've gotten messages recently from folks who have been tuning in who have been getting their friends to tune in who have heard us on other podcasts if you know i'm i'm news editor over at usg so i've been on the acts of the blood god podcast and i have made sure to shout out this podcast as often as i can (laughs) uh we love shouting out our podcast we love having y'all here this is a great adventure and we're so glad that people are taking it with us so if you want to join in you can head on over to patreon.com slash normdfm or you can head to our twitter and follow us at normdfm show uh we love having y'all along the patreon's a great way to support us the twitter's a great way to follow us we post every time stuff goes up we're on spotify we're on google play we're on itunes get in there listen to us hang out with us have a good time we're we're loving as much as i may not sound like it i am enjoying andromeda and i'm not just saying that to make myself feel good 
because we've got <laughs> we're recording behind the scenes fun fact we've got two episodes this week to record uh because i will be gone at pax west uh this coming weekend so our normal record date has been messed with a bit so i've been playing ahead to make sure that we can record two episodes this week so the next episode which will be aya which will be Havarl. It'll be Vold. We're going to visit three worlds. We're going to meet new races. We're going to find new vaults. There's going to be a really big place and a really tiny place. We're going to have so much to talk about. It's all going to happen before I get on a plane to Seattle. So that's a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you all are too. And thank you for joining us today on Normandy FM.